Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast today on the pod with interest rates remaining high and the Bank of Canada looking at another potential rate hike. We look at what you can expect this fall from Vancouver's real estate market. And for the 13th consecutive month, more than 190 British Columbians have lost their lives to toxic drugs. Former Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart joins us to discuss the move to decriminalize drugs in our province. And hotline bling, the first Drake show is postponed due to technical difficulties, leaving fans stuck with hefty travel and hotel expenses. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Corner Service announced BC is on pace for the deadliest year in its unregulated toxic drug crisis with 198 deaths reported for the month of July alone. The Corner Service says there have been at least 1,455 deaths in the first seven months of 2023, the most ever recorded. 56% of those deaths uh, occurred in the Vancouver Coastal Health and Fraser Health Authority, so Metro Vancouver region mostly. And the Corner Service says that the Northern Health uh, region also continues to have the highest per capita toxic drug death rate. Now, to put that in context for you, BC is on pace to potentially exceed the 2,383 deaths recorded last year. And now in 2016, the province declared a public health emergency over the drug poisoning deaths. Uh, And since then, 12,739 people in this province have died from drug overdoses. Joining me now to talk about this issue is Eleanor Sterko. She's a BC United MLA for South Surrey and a Shadow Minister for Mental Health, Addiction, Recovery and Education. Eleanor, thank you for joining us. Jazz, thanks for having me. My apologies for the long introduction there, but I wanted to put all this into context in regards to what's happening now and since 2016. Uh, what are we doing wrong? I mean, we've, we've called this a, a public health emergency in 2016, as I said, but here we are probably headed towards the worst year on record in regards to British Columbians dying. What are we doing wrong? There's a number of things that are actually being done wrong, but I think... To put it into a very simplistic terms, when we're looking at a problem like our addiction absolute catastrophe that we have in British Columbia right now, we need to stop trying to eat the elephant bite by bite and start looking at the entire elephant and dealing with it all at once. So we can't just put one emphasis on one part of a treatment system or uh, funding one part of harm reduction or looking at housing first or looking at, you know, simply one piece of the puzzle at a time. We have to look at the whole animal and attack this as a, as a true recovery-oriented system of care that deals with people from the very onset of, you know, even dealing with prevention in the education system right through to aftercare once someone is back on their feet and um, recovered to the best of their ability. So, Right now, what we have is the piecemeal approach that's been taken time and again, and it's just not working. So in your mind, what one or two things, and you've talked about the whole system, and that I understand, but specifically, what are one or two things you think we should be implementing or uh, you know, increasing in budgeting that we need to do or do a lot better in to making sure this number heads in the, uh, the other direction? First and foremost, uh, recovery and treatment need to be free for all British Columbians. We need to remove the financial barriers, especially those that exist and exist to a great extent in the largest population that is actually succumbing to toxicity, and that's people who live in the middle class. Um, If you are a person who is on a form of income assistance, chances are you may qualify for free treatment and recovery services in BC already. If you're very wealthy, you can probably fund yourself. But the vast majority of British Columbians cannot afford the 30,000 and upwards uh, treatment and recovery options that are available to them. And then the second thing, and this is actually related to today's toxicity death numbers, 
is the fact that right now the government of British Columbia is not providing the appropriate care to meet the needs, the complex needs of people who are suffering from some very severe issues here in British Columbia. So, for example, you probably saw it. I know that Global did a news story talking about the 33 percent of individuals who succumb to drug toxicity who are living in circumstances like SROs, hotels, and other supportive, so-called supportive housing, I should say. Um, the reality is, is that we're not matching and marrying up people with appropriate services right now. There was a story just on Global Jazz that you remember where a guy succumbed to drug toxicity in, in a supportive housing, so-called supportive housing, and they didn't even find his remains for five days just last month. And this is just simply can't exist and continue to be this way and expect the numbers to improve. I mean, often, uh, you know, I've had Pierre Polyev on the show and he's talked about the, the model in Alberta. Is that what you're thinking of here? Just find the money and that maybe half a billion dollars, another billion dollars oh, to start building these treatment plants and then and offer them up for free or at least at a much lower rate than what, what what's being charged now? Absolutely. And first and foremost, one of the most important... Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but do you think we have the money to do that? And I don't mean to be flippant here because we are losing people. British Columbians are dying, and I understand that. But it's still, you know, no government has, whether it be BC Liberals or BC United prior to 2017 or now and the NDP, the money isn't being spent on these things. And I don't know why, but they're not. I mean, part of this is, is, is about priorities, is it not? It's about political will, Jazz, and it's about having a courage of conviction to do the right thing for British Columbians. And the reality is is that taxpayers, of course, they want their money spent wisely. But the way that there are billions of dollars in our province being spent on options that are not working, on piecemeal solutions that have not reduced the number of toxicity deaths in BC, is a waste of taxpayer money. So we want to commit to putting together an actual whole-of-animal plan that will make a difference. And we're seeing that in Alberta, for example, and in other jurisdictions that are adopting a recovery-oriented system of care, that are putting recovery options into their public safety plans, that it is actually making a difference not only in improving the lives of people suffering from complex issues, but also helping address some of the crime that people are seeing. And so whether we have the money, the thing is, is that we need to make sure that we allocate the funds because on the back end, it's costing you way more to to pay for the after effects of doing a very poor job than the in, initial large investment is going to take to get us back on track. It's going to pay off in massive dividends down the road, not only in wellness, but in actual savings for the taxpayer. Now, I have Kennedy Stewart, former Mayor Kennedy Stewart, joining us at 5 o'clock to talk about his book, a new book, Decrim, uh, How We Decriminalize Drugs in British Columbia. Uh, do you think that was the right way to go? Uh, he certainly is an advocate for that. I know you said we can't look at look at this in a, in a peace bill way, and we've talked about municipalities already having to deal with issues of pu- public drug use in parks where they've had to bring in their own bylaws. But the issue itself, most professionals would say decriminalization of a small amount of hard drugs is the right thing to, go, to do. Would you agree with that, or do you think that was a mistake? I think that it's really hard for anyone to say whether or not decriminalization was the right thing to do, Jazz, because this government hasn't fulfilled its commitment to provide the metrics on how it's going. They haven't put up the publicly-facing dashboard. So how can anyone, including Kennedy Stewart or whoever it's going to be, say whether it's been a success or not. But what we do know is that our overdose rates have not declined. We are actually on track to have another deadly record set in our province. And the level of street disorder that communities are dealing with and the level of fear that people feel 
uh, in communities as a result of uh, open drug use and as a result of some of the disorder problems that we're having are just not sustainable for the province. So we certainly, you know, and, and one of the things I haven't minced words in saying this, we don't have decriminalization in British Columbia. We have a default legalization because there are no regulations. This government has failed at every opportunity to put safeguards in place, to prevent people from open drug use in front of the doorway of your building or your office, or even at parks and playgrounds or beaches in British Columbia. Without any regulations, by default, it's legal. So, you know, this government is, is failing at its task. It hasn't met the mandates that were put in place by the federal government. There were caveats to us going forward with this with this trial. And so, you know, I think maybe it was a bit early for our, the former mayor of Vancouver to come out with this book because we don't know what the end of this experiment is going to be. But so far, I would say that the results don't look good. Eleanor, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Jazz. Now, if you're a parent, you know this very well in regards to children and allergies. It's an ongoing issue no matter what time of the year, but uh, it, it is certainly, I know, uh, one of those things that parents have to deal with on a consistent basis. Joining me now is Jerry Mayor Judson because she's got some interesting news out of, uh, I guess, a, a, an investigation or a study out at UBC. Yeah, so it's you, you think of allergies, of course, you're exposed to the allergen, and then you get the allergy, and oh no, we don't know why. But turns out it might have something to do with your gut. So I talked to Dr. Stuart Turvey. He is a professor in the pediatric department at UBC and an investigator at the BC Children's Hospital Research Institute about this idea that your kiddo developing allergies might be a gut thing. We've known really since the 1980s that the the rates of allergic disease in children have really tripled so that allergies are now the most common and burdensome issue facing young children. And so we wanted to do research to see if we could understand that and ultimately to try and reverse that trend. When we look at some of the factors that underlie this increase in um, allergies, it kind of centers around being exposed to microbes. And what we've come to understand is that the way we grow up today is different from my grandparents. We, we live in smaller families. We don't live on farms. We take more antibiotics. More children are born by cesarean section. Less children are breastfed. A common denominator with all of this is actually exposure to microbes. And we know that within us, and particularly in our gut, there's a huge community of bacteria that live there that are really important for controlling and training our immune system. Allergies are really about the immune system being confused. That confusion is caused by some missing uh, microbes. So it's a combination of all these things that we sort of no longer do. We're just exposed to fewer microbes that are necessary for us to kind of get a good microbacterial gut sort of environment. Yeah, that's that's right. And, and so actually what we're losing is biodiversity in our gut as a, as a species. When I went to medical school, they really taught me to name the bacteria and they told me to memorize which antibiotics kill them. So we oh. were taught that bacteria weren't our friends. Sadly, we as a, as a global community are starting to lose some of these health-promoting bacteria. And, and that's what we're seeing in children who go on to have allergies, is that they're missing some of these important health-promoting bacteria. This research is only possible really because of the generosity of over 3,000 families across Canada. About 10 years ago, uh, we recruited pregnant women across Canada, and then we've been following up those families. And, and that's how we make these important discoveries, but it's really a testament to the generosity of more than 3,000 Canadian families. So the, the four allergies you studied, it was eczema and asthma and food allergies and hay fever, right? That's right. So 
they're interesting in that we sometimes don't think that they have much in common. You know, asthma is a disease of the lungs causing coughing and wheezing, while, for example, food allergy might be, you know, talking about a child allergic to peanut. But they actually all are caused by this confused immune system. And the key to training an immune system in a child are the early life bacteria that colonize our intestine. If I have like an infant at home, um, what can I do as the parent of an infant to maybe mitigate Hmm. um, my baby's chances of developing these conditions? If we go from the very beginning, if it's safe and and appropriate, having a baby born by vaginal delivery is really important for that beneficial exposure to bacteria. The next big modifier and help for the gut bacteria is breastfeeding. And so we as a society should be doing everything we can to promote effective breastfeeding and supporting people to breastfeed successfully. And then the last one is to really cherish antibiotics. So they, they help infections, but they also kill these health-promoting gut bacteria. And so we should be really careful with the use of antibiotics in children and only use them when, when absolutely necessary. If we sort of look forward into the future, Our research has identified a list of bacteria that seem to be missing in the children who are at the highest risk of allergies. So in the future, we envisage that we might be adding these bacteria back to to children and to, to families to bring them back into our community because they've been lost over the last few generations. But, but that's in the future. It's one of those conversations, though, uh, that we parents always have. I, I, you know, from parents to comedians, talking about why do kids have like pe- uh, peanut allergies? We didn't have that as a kid. It mm-hmm. goes back to the gut, is what, you, what the doctors say. Yeah, all back to the gut bacteria. So you got to like right when your kiddo is a is an infant, infant. If you can avoid, I guess, giving them antibiotics, and if you can, uh, yeah, build up that good uh, gut bacteria between between mom and baby. That's that's where the key is. And I was super interested in this study because I've got three out of four. I've got eczema and I've got asthma and I don't have any food allergies, but I do have, uh, I do got hay fever. And my, my family doctor told me about the link between these four. And he's yeah. like, oh, if you have one, you're probably more likely to have the other. And this was years ago, but that was it. So I was like, oh, it's all to do with gut bacteria. So I'm just going to try to repair old wounds by getting into the kombucha. So moral of the story, uh, raise free range kids. Free range kids. (laughs) Let them eat dirt. I don't know. (laughs) I I believe that actually. For sure. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's how you build up your immune system. And and some of those things you don't have control over because of personal health. But that is true. Let kids run around. Don't be parents wrapping your kids in bubble wrap and trying to take care of everything. Exactly. Exactly. Free range kids. Easier said than done, <laughs> by the way, as a parent, so I can say that. Thank you, Jerry. Thanks, Jazz. That's our Jerry Mayor Jets. Let's talk real estate. I've often said that if without real estate, what would we talk about at Vancouver dinner parties? And it's a very interesting time uh, in the Lower Mainland, of course, with significant amount of um, uh, interest rate hikes by the Bank of Canada. Uh, and I do believe the bank will be looking at those rates once again in September for a potential increase. No one knows if it will come, of course, but of course, the challenge is already there for a lot of homeowners in regards to paying that mortgage. Uh, in, in today's report from the BC Real Estate Association says the Greater Vancouver will continue to be the most expensive market in the province in 2024 with an average resale value of 1.3 million dollars. Now, one of the things, of course, that we'll be looking at is whether or not sales volume will increase or is this just based on uh, low um, low amount of uh, houses available for sale and what will that mean for pricing? Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about the fall housing market is Sarah Daniels. He's a real estate agent in South Surrey, an author and a broadcaster as well. Sarah, Welcome. 
Hey there, how are you? I'm doing very well. And I uh, want to chat with you today because of the new numbers from the BC Real Estate uh, Association. Um, your thoughts, uh, first and foremost, what are you seeing out in the burbs in regards to uh, just volume, in regards to sales price? What's it looking like to, for you? Well, you know, I work all through the Fraser Valley, and I also I've worked in areas like Maple Ridge, etc. And I find that the farther that you get from the downtown core, mm-hmm. um, the sooner you feel the effects of interest rates. Because you're, where the prices, um, you know, the farther you get away from downtown Vancouver, the prices tend to drop. Um, you know, as for a detached home in Vancouver, for instance, is going to be more expensive than a, a detached home in Langley. It's just the way it works. And, and in the same sort of way, you see the a reaction to interest rates uh, change at the same time. So, for instance, I had a listing in Maple Ridge that um, was a beautiful townhouse that we listed at the beginning of June. And we were marketing it to hold for offers. And unfortunately, the day after we listed, uh, there was that June interest hike that people were not necessarily expecting. Mm -hmm. And it really cast a shadow on the market because a lot of this is psychological. The interesting thing is, is it scared people off. But if you were actively looking, you should have had a rate hold for at least a couple of months. And so that rate hike should not be affecting you. But people, you know, we we watch the news and and granted, this is how the news cycle works. You get, a, you get a minute or two of a headline and people hear something mm-hmm. and that's what locks in their brain and they get frightened. I mean, I understand that because right now we are looking at pretty much historically high interest rates for the last 20 years. But if you're purchasing and you need to sell right now, I mean, as long as you're doing it in the same market, like that you're not selling right now and then you're thinking I'm going to wait two years to buy because you have this mythical crystal ball where you think prices are going to drop, that's where people run into problems. Mm-hmm. It's, over, it's over trying to uh, you know, outplay the market. It's like trying to be you know, a stock investor when you don't have any idea how the stock market works. Now, the Bank of Canada has hiked interest rates uh, 10 times since March of yeah. 2022. Uh, obviously, as you say, that can have an impact on people, not just in regards to their pocketbook, but, but, mm-hmm. but uh, when it comes to psychology as well. Uh, what is behind the lack of supply in your mind? Is it the same thing. Look, we're going to wait until this magical then interest rates go down, which means there may be more people fighting for for these properties, which means higher prices. I mean, what's happening there? It's hard. You know, it's, it's, it's a discussion that I have with clients all the time. They'll say like, "Oh, I'm I'm going to wait for the market to recover because you know I'm going to get more money for my property when I sell it." And that could be true. You very well could get more money because when uh, when the interest rates drop, you know, people are, are qualified for more. It puts a little bit more pressure on the market. It also pushes some of those prices up. The the difference is that if you're even if you're downsizing or upsizing, it's not what you're selling for or what you're purchasing for. It's the spread. So you know if you're waiting like for instance for the uh, property that you're interested in or or that you're planning on selling and you're waiting for that 1.5 million dollars say you've got uh, a house uh in the abbotsford area and you're holding on for that 1.85 million dollar uh price the the townhouse that you were planning to downsize is going to see a lot more competition perhaps you're going to see that price probably come up faster than you will that detached house and so the, the, you know, yeah, you're waiting for that maybe extra $50,000 for that sale at 1.5. Meanwhile, the property that you were inter- interested in purchasing has gone up 80. So you're not doing yourself a service. You have to sort of look at what the market is doing in the price point that you're selling at and the price point that you're purchasing at and, and go from there. Because at the end of the day, you're, the idea is that you're purchasing something that you're going to be able to stay in for five years. If you're just making a purchase for a, a couple of years, 
you're, you probably need to sort of rethink your strategy and maybe stay out of the market a little bit longer and until you're in a position to buy something that's going to be right longer. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one of the things we've been talking about is the fact that the government, you know, has to make sure there's more supply in the market in regards to yeah. the broader issue of, of housing affordability. What I find interesting is the federal government, um, when they were directly involved in non-market housing especially, uh, they peaked in building housing in this country in the early uh, 1970s. So that's how how far back uh, it's been. Wow. And, and yeah. since, you know, the fight against the deficit in the 1990s against uh, with uh, Prime Ministers Kretschmann and Martin, they really got out of the housing, housing business. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we've been sort of building towards this housing crisis that we now have in regards mm-hmm. to supply. For what you see, I mean, can government have that much of an impact in regards to leading to more supply being built, and, and especially in a, in, a, in a very quick manner? Well, we are very much a NIMBY society. Nobody wants it in their backyard. So, you know, if you've lived on the west side of Vancouver all your life, you know, and and there's proposals for multifamily complexes that are going to be on your block, people get upset about that. But we have to realize that the world is changing. You can't live in your little bubble of the 1970s or 1980s anymore. And things are going to change. And it really does, in my opinion, take all levels of government. People like to blame the feds. They like to blame the provincial uh, government and the municipalities for all sorts of different things. But it's going to take multi-levels here. You need to, to look at zoning municipal, municipality-wise mm-hmm. and the ease and ability to get permits. Um, from the provincial side, maybe tax breaks, etc. And same with the feds, maybe uh, purchasing land. Um, you know, part of the problem right now is, that, you know, that the sad irony is builders build when the interest rates are low. The projects are being put on hold right now. Some projects are being cancelled because of the higher interest rates and because buyers are on the sidelines. So, in fact, this, this surge in interest rates, which is to quell inflation and has been pretty successful at that, and I understand the logic behind it, has actually put a break on development. And, you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. You, there's some good that comes out of these things and some bad. Mm-hmm. We have to start looking at um, building properties that are specifically rental targeted. And in order to do that, you know, developers are not going to make any money on that. And, and you know, that that's fine. Lots of people don't like developers. But if they're not making a profit, they're not going to build it. So that means that the feds, the provinces, and the municipalities need to shake their heads, get together, work together, a 10-year plan, not based on, you know, ideology and all the rest of it, but all working together on how we are going to make housing more realistic for the next the next generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, my final question to you, and I know some people are struggling, and, and I do have a tremendous yeah. amount of sympathy for them, especially if they had a variable rate mortgage and, and they're struggling yeah. under the weight of this, and a lot of young families especially. Uh, but having said that, there seems to me, and as a layperson, there's some resilience at the very least, yeah. uh, balance in the market right now. And perhaps yeah. it's, this is not a, necessarily a bad thing. I don't want to see in, you know, interest rate increases continue, and hopefully this may be the last one, the, this one in June that we just saw. But in the grand scheme of things, do you think this has actually brought some balance into the market, some calmness, uh, even, even though it may be temporary? I don't know. But it, do you think that there's a positive yeah. to it? There, it's, there have been some positive. I mean, and the last time, actually, there was there, the last one was actually in July, which kind of really took everybody off guard. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, right now, if you're looking to purchase, you know, the the I mean, talk to a talk to a, a, a actual mortgage broker who represents a lot of different. Uh, um, uh, lenders and can give you all sorts of great advice, but they they will say to you, you know, don't lock in for a five-year fixed. 
um, get a short-term mortgage, even at that higher rate, because, you know, what we're what we are all looking forward to, and even the most conservative people are, are saying is that by into 2024, we're going to start to see those rates come down. We're going to see some, like, you know, easing uh, for people, which is good news. I mean, so there is positive news in that sense. But like I said, when you see the interest rates drop down, you're going to see the prices start to come back up. So you can buy now and then renegotiate your, your mortgage in a year or two, and you're probably buying at a pretty good number right now. Or you can wait for those interest rates to come down and the competition to be back on. Mm-hmm. It really is, you have to look at your needs and you, and you need to speak to your realtor and have a long talk about the area that you're focused in and what you're looking for and what the prices are doing in that area and not look at the big overview. Because when we talk about real estate in the Fraser Valley, what happens out towards um, Abbotsford Aldergrove is completely different than what happens in central Surrey. So you have to, you have to actually know the neighborhood that you're talking about and, and go from there. Yeah. Sarah, thank you. You're more than welcome, my friend. Now, if you're living under a rock, you may not have heard this, but promoters uh, yesterday postponed uh, Canadian rap superstar Drake's uh, Monday performance. Uh, at the last minute, uh, the update was posted on social media at 6 p.m. Uh, by Rogers Arena and Live Nation that the show had been put on pause because they had technical difficulties with a newly installed scoreboard. I got a, an update uh, from my son, who was waiting in line all day, uh, and many others uh, were waiting all day yesterday to get in, looking forward to seeing Drake perform. Uh, and one of those individuals uh, who also was planning to go was our own producer, Stephen Chang. We're joined also by Ryan Lee Hall and our contributor, uh, Jerry Mayer Judson as well. Stephen, let me go to you first. Tell me, first and foremost, you came in today. Now, be very honest. And you were in a, not a foul mood, but you were not a happy guy this morning. No, Stephen was not happy this morning, Jazz. As a matter of fact, Stephen was very disappointed because I was very frustrated with how things turned out last night. Uh, the concert didn't happen, as you would know. Rogers Arena posted an Instagram post yesterday, uh, basically 20 minutes before the doors opened, saying, oh, no, we had to postpone the concert till Wednesday because there was an issue with the Jumbotron. So... I, along with many others on the streets of downtown Vancouver, were very upset about what happened there. So I just pulled my phone out and was like, you know what? I want to get the thoughts of other people who are going to the concert just like me. Here's what they said. This is my first ever Drake concert, and I was really looking forward to it. And as soon as it was time to go, less than an hour before the doors were supposed to open, they send us um, an Instagram post. It's really frustrating. I get it if it's out of their control, but I just feel like a screen that you're trying to install was probably being installed earlier today at the bare minimum, so you could have let us know then. I'm feeling really frustrated. We both got so much time to get ready, and it's just so disappointing because it was so last minute. It was only on Instagram. There was no other platforms. We definitely thought it was a prank. And then only 15 minutes after it was announced that we actually got an email. So it was way too late. And there's other people who actually book hotels, came from different provinces to watch this. It's just a huge waste of time for them. Well, I took the day off work, and I think a lot of other people took time off work as well. So that's really frustrating for them. They flew in too, so that's even worse. Um, I think they had a lot of time to announce this, and they shouldn't have done it like last minute. Well, I actually came here from Victoria to see it today, and I'm working on Wednesday, so it's like uh, hopefully they give us like some sort of refund or some like sort of option because like Wednesday is going to be tricky to try and make it work. So you would not believe what we went through to get today to get these tickets. We actually bought them like an hour ago. 
for like a way high to like way expensive price just because we wanted to see it tonight. It was such a spur of the moment and now it's just like what was the point? We probably could have got a lot cheaper for like tomorrow. I'm on good mixed emotions. I'm like I understand it but at the same time I'm pressed. I don't know. It couldn't have been like a couple hours before, not 45 minutes before. I'm prepared for this. You know what? It's fine. It's fine. I guess. It's fine. If they did, we gonna be in some trouble. It's not fine at all. Steven, uh, now it, it, you don't have to say exactly what you said when you came in this morning, but you were not happy with what happened. You weren't happy with the Canucks. You weren't even happy with the Canucks ownership, were you? Oh, no. I was very, very <laughs> disappointed, Jazz. As you can see, I was just in a mood, in a very angry oh, mood. Oh, we will not be mentioning what you said, but yeah, you were not happy. <laughs> we're joined by Ryan Lee Hall, our technical producer, and Jerry Mary Judson as well. Have you guys gone to concerts, either of you, that they've been postponed or canceled? I, I never one that's been postponed or canceled. I've actually never been to any sort of event that's ever been postponed or canceled. You've been lucky. Yeah, well, you've been lucky. Uh, me, no, but I can kind of relate to traveling to see Drake because Drake does not come to. Well, I mean, I'm from Calgary, yeah. And uh, I was lucky enough that I did go. I get to see him twice in Edmonton, but we did make the trip. So imagine the three hours shot up to Edmonton, yeah. And then being like, oh, pff, nope, actually, sorry, we're not good at installing the screen. So I would be incredibly choked. I think part just watching this from afar is the what people have had to pay for tickets here like they were selling for Stephen correct me if I'm wrong six seven hundred dollars I think oh, yeah. on day one and if you're coming in from Calgary or from Victoria wherever it may be to take time off I think that's what irks people is these postponements do happen for technical reasons mm -hmm. but the, you know it, it people do want to see these artists but the ticket prices have gotten so high now that it just offends people and they get angry because look, uh, I wanted to go and I can't anymore. And I don't know how, how you fix this. It's almost like sometimes concert goers are treated like airline passengers now. Yeah, it's it's very inconvenient. It's like a very, uh, it's an inconvenience for everyone, Jazz. And especially with the number of people who bought these tickets. Some people even bought it last minute, like some of the girls who I interviewed in, yeah. um, in, in that piece there. Um, six to four hundred bucks at least just to get nosebleeds jazz nosebleeds just to see a little tiny ant that actually turns out to be drake i don't understand why they're working on on the um on the scoreboard day of like i, I don't understand why it has to be so last minute always that's what i don't understand could have been earlier honestly could have been, been later today could have been later <laughs> or later you could have done it next week exactly <laughs> Well, they've got a while before the NHL season starts. I didn't understand that. But, you know, it's postponed. Hopefully everything works out uh, tomorrow. And there is a concert tonight at 8 o'clock as well. Uh, fingers crossed that works out for everybody. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Jazz. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Well, there you go. For the 13th consecutive month, more than 190 British Columbians have lost their lives to the toxic, unregulated drug supply, according to a new uh, data, which was released by the BC Coroner Service. Now, between January and July of this year, at least 1,455 deaths were attributed to toxic drugs, the largest number ever reported by the BC Coroner Service in the first seven months of a calendar year. Uh, today's numbers, of course, are a stark reminder that we have more to do in regards to protecting our fellow British Columbians. Um, the numbers today, of course, come after major changes were announced on in January of, that, of this year. That was the beginning of a three-year trial period for decriminalizing the possession of small amounts of hard drugs in British Columbia. It was a groundbreaking change in Canada's approach to drug use. Now, our next guest knows a few things about this issue. Kennedy Stewart has been a prominent supporter of decriminalizing both uh, during his tenure as mayor of Vancouver and now his new role as director of the Centre for Public Policy Research at Simon Fraser University. His new book, Decrim, How We Decriminalize Drugs in British Columbia, recounts the progress in addressing this crisis. He joins us now. Kennedy Stewart, thank you for speaking to us today. 
Hi, Jazz. Thanks for having me on. Now, generally, post-politics, it's a time to decompress. Uh, you instead decided to write a book, which is a good thing, but you got to go through a lot of uh, the challenges that you've had to go through as mayor and and, uh, and probably as an MP as well And when you wrote this book. What convinced you? What, when did you decide, look, I've got to write a book on this issue? Yeah, I mean, it, it's just an issue that haunts me and I think many uh, Vancouverites, British Columbians and Canadians. Uh, I, can't, I can't walk down the street without talking to somebody that's been affected by this, having a loved one pass away in probably the most horrendous way imaginable. And I just thought, okay, well, I did what I could while I was mayor and now I'm in a different job, but that doesn't mean I stop. Uh, and you know, uh, my family's lost, a, f- a member of our family has died uh, due to this toxic drugs, and there's many, many other people that are affected. So that's why I thought, and the book is, there's lots of folks out there talking about solutions and things. I thought the value I could add was to explain how you actually make major drug policy change and, and what it takes to uh, to try something different. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the journey to getting to the point where that the announcement was made, of course, this January. You were not mayor at that time, but obviously the journey was really before that in regards mm-hmm. to working things through with the provincial government, the federal government, senior levels of government are always very difficult to deal with because they're just large institutions and organizations. Walk, walk me through what it was like for you just to just to deal with those two levels of senior government. Yeah, I mean, uh, when I became mayor in 2018, I, you know, one of the things I campaigned on was was doing what we could do, new steps to tackle the, the poison drug crisis. And uh, really, decriminalization wasn't on the radar at that point because uh, the prime minister told me right to my face twice that he was never going to do this. And John Horgan, premier at the time, was also no fan. And so... I didn't really think that this was possible, although the uh, Chiefs of Police of Canada called for this. They wrote a great report in 2018. Uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry had called for this in a very, very strong way. Um, so so it wasn't really on the radar until uh, Patty Haydu was appointed the health minister, uh, federal health minister by uh by the Prime Minister Trudeau, and um, I'd known her from my time in Parliament, knew that she actually worked at, before coming to Parliament in harm reduction services. Mm-hmm. And I talked to her, and uh, her lawyers looked at this whole thing and said, you know, the city of Vancouver can go on its own to decriminalize drugs. And so I said, let's do it and um, put forward an application to Health Canada, uh, which really laid the groundwork for the provincial application and now the uh, the three-year pilot project. So do you think uh, the, the senior minister was the one who was able to twist the arm or convince the prime minister, and that eventually led to the premier of BC, premier organ, to also look at this issue differently? Yeah, I mean, the book does kind of explain all the, all the, mm-hmm. the intrigue behind that, and it's probably a lot to go into here, but it was... The minister, the federal health minister, actually had independent discretion in this area. So... She didn't have to go to cabinet. She didn't have to go to the prime minister. It was outlined in the in the act that she could do this on her own. So she took a risk, even though she knew it wasn't popular within her cabinet, and 
really got the ball going. Uh, in the end, uh, I'm no longer mayor. She's no longer health minister. So you can kind of draw your conclusions as to as to what those kind of moves uh, do for political careers. But um, that's what it took. And I think any f- future changes are going to take politicians uh, taking the same level of risk. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things you talked about, just as mayor, and, and it isn't directly specific to this issue, but it's also just being a mayor, you sort of broke down the opposition that you had to deal with, uh, from the NIMBYs mm-hmm. to the gentrifiers to the haters, uh, and uh, you've referred to it as uh, Sim City as well, mm-hmm. in regards to our present mayor. Walk me through just the, the challenges of getting things done in this city, and, and when you sort of describe some of these people in regards to the different types of opposition. Uh, when you talked about NIMBYs uh, and then you talked about uh, gentrifiers, walk me through some of the opposition yeah. that you had to deal with. Sure. So, um, on specifically on the um, you, you know the drug uh, the drug issue, uh, you know, I don't know how many public hearings I chaired uh, or how many different uh, debates uh, over the four years as mayor, but inevitably, folks who were very wealthy from particular neighborhoods would come out and. Uh, say, you know, refer people, and I hate to use triggering words, but as junkies or as, as you know, criminals, and they, and they didn't want these folks in their neighborhoods. And it was just night after night after night. Um, and so those folks really, I mean, in the end, I think they uh, decided to vote against me because of these policies I was putting in place, fair enough. But, but I think you have to take responsibility for what you're doing. Um, the other is, uh, you know, overdose uh, the Sim government has shut down an overdose prevention site in Yale Town, or is, or is in, on the verge of shutting it down, in the middle of uh, these terrible statistics that you're reading out. Mm-hmm. So th- they were supported, you know, uh, the ABC uh, council and, and mayor were supported by these folks who are really more concerned about, uh, you know, some uh, not saving lives, essentially. So mm-hmm. you, you can imagine in the middle of this crisis saying you're going to close over to prevention sites and that will just lead to more death which is just horrible so so that was part of the lines that were drawn in the 2022 election mm-hmm. um, so do you think so do you think this particular issue was probably one of the major issues that caused you to lose the the, the mayoralty race be, be, because of the opposition to it or at least the organized opposition to it yeah i think so and you know covid Really, I mean, you're seeing Polyev do it. You saw Sim do it. You see others do it. You know, opposition, the opposition tends to like to forget that COVID happened and that all these things that have kind of hit our cities across Canada and here just were bad governance. But in fact, it was it was probably the biggest catastrophe to hit the city uh, in our short history, mm-hmm. uh, shutting everything down, downtown shutting, you know, massive revenue shortfalls, all that kind of stuff. And it also led to an increase or helped uh, increase the, the number of people that are dying from, from toxic drugs, as I explained in the book. So then then you just, you know, just say everything is broken and blame the incumbents, um, you know, and, and that is you're seeing this play out at the national level now, too, with, with Pierre Polyev. So the problem is once you get in office after running a campaign like that, um, you know, crime is up almost 10 percent now over the last year. So you, you kind of. You say everything's broken and you're going to fix it, but if you don't really have any ideas or you don't try something new, things will continue to get worse. And I think that's 
you know, that's my fear at the national level, and I think that's what's happening here in Vancouver now. Mm-hmm. Now, at the beginning of this interview, I had mentioned the uh, the drug toxicity deaths, 196 mm-hmm. this yeah, month in totally. July, uh, just under 1,500 deaths since January of this year. Now, we had... Um, uh, Eleanor Sturko on uh, BC Liberal, uh, BC United mm-hmm. MLA uh, from South Surrey, uh, and she says that we've put too much emphasis on one part of treatment uh, when we talk about drug decriminalization, but we should be also be looking at treatment. I want you to listen to her comments from earlier today. Sure. We need to stop trying to eat the elephant bite by bite and start looking at the entire elephant and dealing with it all at once. So we can't just put one emphasis on one part of a treatment system or uh, funding one part of harm reduction or looking at housing first or looking at, you know, simply one piece of the puzzle at a time. We have to look at the whole animal and attack this as a, as a true recovery-oriented system of care that deals with people from the very onset of even dealing with prevention in the education system right through to aftercare once someone is back on their feet and um, recovered to the best of their abilities. Right now, what we have is the piecemeal approach that's been taken time and again, and it's just not working. Um, now, you take that, what she's had to say, and you know, you'd mentioned Pierre Polygev, he is also pointing to the model in, in Alberta, which is more treatment-focused. Uh, add to that another layer, which is municipalities having to bring in bylaws, basically banning uh, the use of drugs in public places. Um, the rollout of, of of this decriminalization, do you think it could have been done better or do you think there were some mistakes made along the way? Because I'm not sure yet the public has, that there's buy-in from the public on this issue. Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, uh, the clip that you played me, I had no idea what she was saying. It didn't really make any sense to me. We have to buy, eat one elephant one bite at a time. It's like, tell that to a mother who's just lost her son. Like, you have to have, if you're the opposition critic for this, you have to have better ideas than, than that, and that's quite disappointing. Um, on the other side of it, uh, decrim is a, is a minor adjustment to make, and I make this all the way through the book. You know, the poli- you know, activists have been calling it forever, but it was really the police, the National Association of Police Chiefs in 2018 said, you know, we, it makes no sense to arrest a high school student for having a small amount of drugs that they have to get education in. And if they become addicted, um, they have to get treatment. However, what the health professionals tell us is that treatment fails if you're, if you're stuck on fentanyl. Treatment fails 90% of the time. And that's really why we have to rely on the advice of, this, of, the, of the healthcare professionals, of the police, of the, uh, of, the, of the health science researchers to give us the best, best path forward. Because, like, today somebody died in Vancouver. You know, this week 150 people um, overdosed in Vancouver. Like, this is happening every day, every week. And I just feel there has to be some kind of, of summit or something pulled together by the premier mm-hmm. to say, look, let's put aside our partisan differences here and come up with uh, – with, with a solution that's going to work. And it will probably be politically risky to do that because it, it is so out of control now um, that nobody seems to have answers. So you want, you want a summit of some sort? Like we get everybody on board, sit down, let's figure this out together. Yeah, I mean, the B.C. Liberals declared the health crisis, right, right. in 2016. That was Terry Lake. So it was recognized by that government. But were you there? That I think you were. No, I wasn't. But, I, but Terry Lake was the one uh, Minister of Health yeah. uh, who, who, who and, he, and he still speaks on this issue as well. Yeah, absolutely, and I and I think that's what we have to do. And unfortunately, it, it's turned into, 
you know, y- you want to punish either a government or or political opponent, and and the poor folks who are are dropping dead in the streets are the victims of this kind of discussion. So, you know, it, it's going to be difficult, but um, the numbers are just going up. So I don't expect decrim to, uh, you know, if if you have ten people dying, you know, maybe decrim saves one of those ten people. It's other measures like, and I agree, uh, more treatment for sure, but we. But it can't just be abstinence-based treatment. It has to be also safer supply, which the police and healthcare professionals uh, also agree with and are calling for uh, via, uh, you know, uh, very, very uh, strongly. Uh, final question to you. This is a three-year pilot project in regards to decriminalization. If the numbers, mm-hmm. the numbers that I read, read out earlier today in regards to the amount that have died, if these numbers do not turn around after three years, should we walk away from this, 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 uh, this experiment? Well... What does walking away mean? It means that you're arresting people and putting them in jail for possessing small amounts of drugs. And that doesn't seem to make any sense. So, in fact, in in many communities, like in Vancouver, the the level of arrests were very low, uh, you know, prior to decriminalization. But it was on the onus of the individual police officer to make that call. And that put too much pressure on the local police, right? Like, if you if you let somebody keep their drugs and they overdose, you're morally and perhaps even legally uh, responsible for that. So the police were saying, look, this needs to be legislated. It can't just be us making judgment calls every time we run into somebody with drugs, which is a lot. <laughs> I think something like 20% of Canadians have used hard drugs in their lifetime. So this is a very big issue you know, uh, we talk about elephants. Well, this is uh, this is the size of a planet. Like this is a huge, a huge concern across the entire country. Decrim is a small step. Uh, we have to listen to the uh, the, the the best evidence and, and health officials and police and move further, uh, or else the bodies are just going to keep piling up, which is just too horrendous to to conceive of. Kennedy Stewart, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.